morning, everybody. Uh, my name's Chris. Uh, welcome to Hiawatha. If you're, if you're visiting, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks again for that, uh, brother. And I just realized the second time hearing that this morning that Wayne like summarized three sermons in that last <laughs> part. This is like the fourth sermon today, you know, basically here. So anyway, we usually just do one. Uh, all right, well, we're going to dive into Matthew here today. If you're new to our church, we're in the uh, sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew. A subset of Matthew we're calling Declaring and Demonstrating the Gospel of the Kingdom, which is basically the huge, the biggest middle chunk of the Gospel. I forget when we started, but it's going to go all the way through chapter, uh, end of chapter 25, I believe, so we have a long ways to go. But we've been in a bit of a sub-series, of that sub-series, <laughs> for a while now, in chapter 13, talking about parables. Uh, parables are... Uh, word picture type metaphorical teachings that Jesus teaches in sometimes in his ministry. In Matthew's gospel account, thir- chapter 13 is the big uh, place he does that. A couple of them come up later in the uh, 24th chapter, I believe, before he dies on the cross for our sins, but um, we'll get to those later. This is the big chunk, though. So if you're newer to uh, the gospel accounts, the, the Bible as a whole even, but this idea of parables, uh, parables are, like I said, word picture type teachings about the nature of the kingdom of God. So at least understand that. If you don't know anything else about parables, uh, that's a good working definition for us to work off of as Christians, anybody reading the Bible, that Jesus is talking about himself as king, the nature of what he's doing in the world by bringing a kingdom into the world, and what it means to be saved. How do we enter that kingdom? Because Jesus talks in very clear terms about being inside and outside the kingdom. So being inside, obviously, is the, the beneficial thing. Being outside is the condemning thing. He talks in very clear terms. There's only two camps. And so being in the kingdom is, is what we want, what he's offering the world through the death and resurrection of himself, because that's where sin, this great problem of the Bible and our lives and history, is dealt with and remedied and fought and won and defeated for us. So as a good king, he does that. So understand that about parables and this phrase, kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, that's what's in focus. It's an abstract phrase, but just don't, over, don't overcomplicate it. He's just talking about salvation. What does it mean to be right with God? What does it mean to be saved? That's the kingdom he's bringing into, into the world. So we'll work off that today. If you're curious about why Jesus speaks in parables uh, at all, we talked about that about four weeks ago now in verses 10 to 17 of this chapter. And there is a reason why before Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he hides his identity from people, from some, not all. It's also a reason why, relatedly, he hides some of his teachings, because parables do that. It's clear in chapter 13, when he speaks in such metaphor, many people just don't understand about the kingdom, and many of whom are already rejecting him and continue to because they don't understand who he is. There's a reason why he does that. We don't have time to go back into that today, uh, but there is a reason why he speaks in parables before the cross, but we don't see parables in the Bible after the cross. A lot more clarity. Uh, but for today's purposes, just understand the basic big picture idea that this is just, this is just Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God, about himself and about, and about salvation. So today, he's going to address his disciples. He's going to finish up the parable section today. We're finishing chapter 13. He's going to address his disciples. He's been speaking to the crowds, and then in private sometimes he'll explain things more clearly to his disciples. So he's going to ask them if they understood the parables. They'll respond. Then Jesus will respond with another one final parable-like statement that we'll unpack today. Then he moves on to once again get rejected by people who know him well, his family. Not the first time this has come up already in the Gospels, but it's becoming a bigger deal. People who know him well, and even just you could say in a broad sense, unlikely people are rejecting him, and unlikely people are receiving him. It's kind of a backwards thing. The outcasts, the the great sinners of society are flocking to him, but people that are pretty good moral people, religious people, are rejecting him. So it's great drama and paradigm-shifting thing Jesus is doing. That's going to come up a little bit later today here as well. But part of that is Jesus' nuclear physical family are not among the disciples, and they're not among those who, uh, at least here in this vantage, from this part of the gospel accounts in history, are not entering the kingdom. They're, They're rejecting him. People from his hometown of Nazareth. So that's the plan for today. We talked about this idea of being trained for the kingdom. Uh, today's passage is Matthew 13, 51 to 58. If you want to open your Bibles, that's great, or grab a pew Bible. But most of this will be on screen as usual, so feel free to follow along here on screen as we read it. Uh, we're going to read it in two parts today. So first, verses 51 and 52, on this idea of, this is the parable today, the final parable, newness in the kingdom. Jesus talks about old and new things. We'll unpack that. Then we'll come back later and talk about this idea of uh, Jesus' family, his people in his hometown, his friends. Uh, rejecting Jesus and being offended by him, and what that in turn tells us about the gospel too. 
All right, so let's start off in Matthew 13, 51. Jesus speaking. Have you understood all these things? Referring to the parables. They said to him, yes. And actually, just stop right there for a second. Uh, when they say yes, they're not totally accurate. They, they, they do understand, but they don't totally understand. So if you know a little bit about the disciples, what happens after this, it might be kind of weird that they say yes. They do get it to a degree. They understand to a degree that he's the Christ. And this is building as the story goes on. They kind of get it that he's special, but they don't understand that he has to die on a cross to bring in the kingdom of God. They don't understand that he has to die in order to defeat their enemies. That that's the mission of Jesus Christ. The cross is, he's got his eyes bent on Jerusalem where he's going to go and, and die and suffer at the hands of sinful men, die among criminals, a torturous death. They don't get that. We know that because they flee him. When this is all happening, they run, turn tail and run, and, and they don't come back. And so that's, we know that they kind of get it. So just put a yes and a no by that. And it's, so it's a little bit of, Jesus doesn't really go there. I think he's probably in his mind thinking, yeah, right, but... They do sort of get some of the meaning of these parables and some of the meaning of the kingdom of God, but also a no. So we have to have a category here for them because there are other people that don't get it more, so that really don't understand. But um, anyway, that's what that means here. Pick up in verse 52. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So a pretty abstract final parable here, verse 52, uh, with varied interpretive possibilities and no explanation. So in some cases in Matthew 13, if you've been here, you've noticed that Jesus explains some of the parables that God does right in the Bible. He inspires that to be there, that we might have clarity all the more on that. Uh, but in some cases, he leaves it hanging. This is one of those cases he just says, the kingdom of heaven is like this guy walking out of his house and he's got a bunch of treasure. Some of it's pretty old and rusty. Others, it's brand new and he's bringing it out. And he kind of ends. So we have to we'll do a little bit more of the hard work of unpacking that. What does that mean? How does the rest of the Bible help us interpret that? And that, by the way, if you're newer to the Bible, some of the best advice I can give you on understanding it is using other parts of the Bible to read the parts you're reading, especially if it's cryptic. So in this case, what does the rest of the Bible have to say about newness? What does the rest of the Bible have to say about new and old things together, juxtaposed? And what does that mean in relation to Christ and God's greater saving agenda, ourselves, whatever it might be, in this case, uh, in reference to, uh, to Christ. So in this passage, or in the parable, Jesus is very simply saying, person or a scribe, a scribe's a teacher, but just plug in person there. The scribal idea becomes important later, I'll get to that. But a person who is trained for the kingdom, in other words, just saved or blessed or right with God, is like a master of a house who brings out of his uh, heart or house treasure containers of what is new and what is old. Matthew 9, 17. Uh, this is a, from a couple of months ago. Jesus speaks in new and old terms here. Do you want to reference this? Because same kind of idea is going on here. Just to show you at least that Jesus speaks in these kinds of terms elsewhere, new and old things as well. It's, it's important for him. Uh, he says in verse 17 here, neither is a new wine put into old wineskins. So don't put new wine into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst. And the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. So we ask then, what, what does Matthew 9:17 mean? What does Matthew 13:51 to 52 mean? Biblically speaking, if we ask, if we use the Bible to interpret this passage, not some outside source, but the Bible itself to, to interpret the trees here, the forest to interpret the trees, then we, we ask the question, what, is, what, it was, what does it say about new and old things elsewhere? And then the answer is, whenever new and old are talked about, they're almost always talked about in reference to the new thing God is either promising to do in the Old Testament, looking ahead to the new, or is doing in the New Testament with Jesus Christ. So in the Old Testament, for example, in Isaiah 43, 19, God says to Isaiah the prophet, to the people of Israel, and ultimately the world, to all of us, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. So basically what God is saying is, I'm going to make dead things live. I'm going to bring life from death. And we know that Christ is the ultimate manifestation of that. He walked out of the tomb. So this is about Christ beforehand. And the New Testament then, all the more clear, right before Jesus dies in Luke 22:20, 20, it says, after, and likewise, the cup, after they'd eaten the bread, Jesus holds up a cup of wine and says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus gets really clear about what he's about to do on the cross. He says, I'm going to shed my blood, 
and I'm going to establish a new testament. It's the same word as covenant. A new covenant or testament between God and people. I'm the intermediary, and not just me, the man Christ, the God-man Christ, but what I do. Until I shed my blood, until I die on a cross, there is no new covenant. There is no way of God covenanting, having a relationship with sinful people. That has to happen. So Jesus doesn't just show up in the world. He shows up with a mission and with his eyes, like I said before, bent towards Jerusalem to go and die. We're talking about rejection here in a little bit, and that's going to become even more clear. Uh, but for right now's purposes, Luke 22:20, 20, Jesus says this is the new thing. So in, in reference to the old ways of God working, which are preparatory, he's now coming to establish this new covenant, which fulfills the old, but is, is a, new, a new thing as well, because it's all on God. It's not on us. Jesus is saying, I do everything here. I want to go to the cross. What I do makes a relationship with God possible. You don't. Sinful people, dead people, can't make that happen. So it's all on me. This is where it becomes very, very, in some ways, offensive and difficult to hear, but incredibly freeing at the same time. Christianity is unique here, by the way, too. No other world religion or system says this. No other world religion or system says, stop climbing the ladder. God's coming down the ladder to you. It's completely unique. God is sacrificing himself and dying in our place for our sins and saying, when you trust in that, just believe that it's true, then you're saved. Uh, Not by being a good person. Not by being a good moral individual. And Jesus demonstrates that over and over again, too, in the Bible by dining with prostitutes and saying to people who think they're pretty good people, uh, stay outside. You're not allowed in the house. So a lot of you know, paradigm-shifting things and teachings happening here with the unlikely people getting close to Christ, but simply people that understand their need for him rather than people who don't. So going back to this idea of old and new then, in simple terms then with the Bible, the Bible is made up of an old covenant and a new covenant that complement each other and serve as this basis of the biblical storyline of salvation. So God works in an old preparatory ways that anticipate new ways of salvation. For example... He gives laws in the Old Testament that make sin more obvious to us because we realize we can't keep it perfectly, only then to make people long for something new and different and better to save them, something from God, not from themselves anymore. That's a good example of old to new, bringing out both treasures. Both are important. Both are a part of the biblical storyline, but the new is the ultimate goal and the better thing. Also, in the Old Testament, he works through types of judges and kings and prophets who look ahead to the, the new Christ, the ultimate Christ, the ultimate judge and king and prophet by resembling him beforehand. It's another example. Or he makes promises in the Old Testament that clearly don't find ultimate fulfillment there because sin and death keep reigning. But only do they find fulfillment in the new with what Christ does. Or he just replaces old creation with, like he says in the New Testament, new creation. And Jesus is that agent of a new creation, a cosmic one. As the prophets, as Jesus, Jesus just says that, and the New Testament authors do, but the prophets predict this as well, that God's going to remake the earth through this great saving cosmic work of his suffering servant. So it comes through suffering, comes through darkness, comes through rejection, comes through the moment where you think all is lost, hopelessness. But through that, God redeems it and, and claims it and says, this is it. This is, this is what I always intended, to come through rejection to bring blessing to the world. That's going to come up later too. So, I have four things, and if we go back and ask the more specific question, what does it mean to be trained for the kingdom? I think there are four things, there are probably more, four main things, two of which pull from what I just said about Old and New Testament-type relationship stuff. The other two uh, pull from the, the passage itself, right from Matthew 13 in context. We'll look at an earlier passage in Matthew 13, and then right from today's passage to get two more things. So, Uh, That's the bigger question, right? What does this mean? That's the broad. A little more specific is, what does it mean to be a scribe, a teacher, or just a person who is trained for the kingdom, who understand the kingdom of God well, enough to be saved? And so I think there are four things. So the first thing is, people who are trained for the kingdom, these first two things go back to what I was just talking about, bring out of their house or their heart the old but true message of sin and death and rebellion against God, but who also bring out the better new promise of deliverance from that sin in what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. And contextually here, uh, this is a huge thing to understand if you're uh, part of the book. Contextually, this is true, this is applicable for us as well because we all bring baggage to the table when we, when we, no matter how familiar with the Bible we are, we have some kind of preconceived notion or presupposition about who Christ is 
and what he did. Even if we say he never existed, that's some type of notion, right, and belief. And so everyone is a theologian to a degree in the sense they have some kind of thoughts on God and the kingdom and Jesus and what he did, what the cross meant. So this is applicable for us too. But in the first century, the Jews had a misunderstanding of the problem and therefore a misunderstanding of the remedy. So in the first century, the Jews were expecting physical deliverance from physical enemies. We talked a lot about that already in Matthew because Jesus does. Jesus brings it up. He's trying to course correct by saying things like, I forgive you your sins to outcasts. To make people think, well, who's the authority to do that? And, you know, the Romans are right down the street. Let's, let's take up arms and go after them. If you're the king, the Messiah, the new David, let's go. But he's, he's healing people physically from leprosy and from blindness. He's dining with prostitutes. He's saying things like, I forgive you your sins and other kinds of teachings that are a bit more enigmatic, like parables. And people are like, is this really the guy? But they had a, they had a misperception of what he, their problem and therefore what, how he was going to remedy that problem. Because for them, the Romans occupying their land were the problem. But Jesus clearly understands, believes, the whole Bible teaches this. Sin is your biggest problem. The fact that you're separated from your creator is the biggest problem you and I will ever have in our life. No matter how much we feel that, it is biblically the case. And many people, all of us, will not feel that at one point in our life. And in context, in the first century, there were tons of people that just flat out did not believe it. And Jesus is lovingly, patiently moving towards them, shift, shift their way over here, and he's shifting them this way and saying, you've got it all wrong. And this is why he's teaching and moving and demonstrating the kingdom in these, in these types of ways. So one angle on the newness, then, is just that. Jesus is saying, your, your biggest problem is not the Romans, it's sin. You're not under Roman oppression, you're under sin oppression. That's what I've come to deliver, deliver you from. So it's, that's not new in the sense that it wasn't true before in the Old Testament, but it's just new in the sense that it's more clear. And in a more fulfilled manner, uh, this, is, this is the case. So that's the first thing. Relatedly then, secondly, people who are trained for the kingdom or who understand the nature of the kingdom of God and are saved from their sins through it, bring out of their house the realization that old laws have found their goal in Christ. The new is better than the, than the old here. So, for example, uh, we talked about uh, a couple weeks ago in, at the end of chapter 11, beginning of chapter 12, Jesus basically says, I am the new Sabbath. So in the Old Testament, the old way was God saying to Israel, every seventh day rest and have festivals that are Sabbath-like and so forth, and remember me through it. In the New Testament, Jesus says, I will give you rest. Not referring to the Sabbath at all. But if you're weary and burdened, come to me. And I will give you rest. And it's a better kind of rest because it's rest for your souls. So that's an example of a scribe bringing out old things, knowing the old law, but seeing how Christ is this better new fulfillment of that that abrogates it and says, now keep me, keep the Sabbath that I give you, which is a much better eternal rest. I love you. I love you. And I've died in your place. And no one can ever take that away. That's a much better restful thought than, than a command that can just prod. And God always intended that always intended that. There are clues in the Old Testament that indicate that as Israel is keeping a physical Sabbath, they were meant to look ahead to a better one that would last forever and that would be more of an internally satisfying type of Sabbath. And so it was always meant to be that, but that's an example. We're going to see in a few weeks how Jesus abolishes food laws, that the Israelites had food laws to keep, and Jesus says at one point here in Matthew, he says something that, in, that effectively abolishes all of them, says they no longer apply because I'm fulfilling them. And we'll, we'll talk about what that means. I can't even begin to unpack that now or I'll spend unintentionally 20 minutes on it, so I'm not even going to try. But it's great. We'll talk about that in a few weeks before Christmas. Even the moral law itself, the Ten Commandments, are wrapped up in Christ and find their goal in him because that law could not be kept by sinful people. It's very clear, again, from the Old Testament that, that they're, given, they're given laws like the Ten Commandments, like don't commit adultery, don't lie, honor your father and mother, keep the Sabbath, don't profane God, just don't take his name in vain, all of that. Don't have any other gods before me, and more. But they're, in, they're unkeepable. Even, even, even if they're keepable on, the, on an outside sense, on the, in, on the inside, like Wayne mentioned during his testimony, which is really where sin resides, which Jesus gets clear on that later in the gospel here. If that's the case, then we've all committed adultery 10,000 times in our heart. Jesus says that. Lust comes from inside, not the outside. So adultery does. So if that's the case, then you know, the problem's way, way more dire than we ever thought. It's a bar that's unjumpable. Completely. No one can keep it. That's the point. So if that's the old thing, then Christ brings in this new, I don't know if I want to say new spin on it because it wasn't like it was not true before, but in a, in a sense, a new spin on it saying, 
Moses said this to you, the commandment said this to you, but I say to you this, to make you understand you cannot keep the law. Christianity is not about the Ten Commandments. It's about me. There's a difference there. Both are important. The old thing is not abrogated or jettisoned completely, but a scribe trained for the kingdom brings out that old in relation to the new work of Christ that surpasses it and is a better covenant than it. Hebrews 8 in the New Testament says that. The New Testament's better than the Old Testament because it was built on better promises. The Old Testament said, do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. Keep this and you will live. New Testament says, don't do, believe, rest in what God has done for you. New Testament says, God does. Old Testament says, you do. See the difference? The former set the stage for the latter by being built on lesser promises. It was set up to fail. It was never God's plan A. This was always God's plan A. So a scribe trained for the kingdom understands that in general, not necessarily all the details, but in general that we're not saved by what we do, we're saved by God doing it. That is unique. That is, that's revolutionary in terms of, if you had all the religions of the world just spread out on the floor here, all the holy books, Christianity is unique right there. Just, just on that basis alone, and for other reasons too, but just on that basis alone, it's unique because it, it says God's hero. And Christians gather underneath the umbrella of a saving agenda, not trying to manufacture it, by being cool, by being awesome, by being righteous, by being good, by being moral. So praise God for that. All right, so that's the second thing. Scribes recognize that. Third thing is going back in context here to Matthew 13, 11. Scribes trained for the kingdom understand that Christ is a gift. The newness that he brings to us is given, not something we earn with our intelligence. So Matthew 13, 11 says, Jesus speaking to his disciples, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. To know the gospel, this has been given to you, not something earned. And the reason why I want to go here and just mention this, it's a bit of a sidebar, but it's easy to look at this parable about the scribe and say, I have to become like him to be saved. I have to be super smart like him and a teacher like him, understand perfectly all the theological nuances of all that I just talked about and more to be saved. But that's not what it's saying. It's just, it's, there's no if-then here, right? There's no, there's no be like this person, then you'll be. There's no then. It's just saying this is the kingdom of God. This is happening. God is giving this ability to understand Jesus to people, and they're saved. So that we can't even take credit for finding Jesus. I mean, in one sense, we might feel that that happened. It's okay to talk in, the, in that capacity, but we don't really find him. He finds us. So, and he gives us this, this ability to understand the nature of the kingdom. So what's required then is that God gives understanding that Christ is the answer to all of our problems, Period. That he's our king, to bring kingdom imagery into this, that he's the slayer of our enemies. So if it helps, just simplify the idea of newness biblically. You just kind of spend back and look at all the times the word new and old are used together or just new in the Bible. Basically what you have standing at the end of the day is Jesus and the cross. That's the new thing God is doing. That's the newness of salvation that he's brought into the world in relation to the old ways that he worked before. He's fulfilled them. So if you do that, then it's quite simple, right? You just receive the, the new thing and as a gift, not as something that, that we earn. All right, and fourth, uh, those who understand the kingdom and who are trained for it bring the treasure of Christ out of their hearts evangelistically. So the idea here is that the house, uh, which elsewhere in the Bible is a metaphor for the heart, for the person, for and treasure, uh, a metaphor for the heart. Basically what's going on here is Someone who understands Jesus, who's saved, brings out of his heart this treasure. And so, you know, the, the, to push the metaphor a bit, it's kind of like somebody having lots of stuff, not a hoarder, but maybe almost, you know, just lots of stuff in their basement and bringing all this stuff out onto their lawn. Old stuff, but especially new stuff, and it's like a yard sale. People can drive by and see it and say, look at this stuff. Look at how glorious it is. Look at how beautiful it is. And some buy it, or some want to go and have the same kind of thing, or vase, or whatever it is, and... That's the idea here, that it's coming out of, of heart. So it's, it has evangelistic connotations. In other words, it's not kept in the basement. So people trained for the kingdom are, by definition, according to Christ's definition here, they bring something that has benefited them, that God has done, shown to them, revealed to them, out, so others can see it and themselves benefit from it. They don't keep the treasure, the new stuff, in the basement. They bring it out into the yard and go door to door, whatever you, however far you want to push the metaphor. Do it. That's good. Just get it out there for other people to benefit from. So Christ is already, remember, at this point in the gospel, equipped people to go and spread the kingdom in small ways 
effectively door-to-door, town-to-town, announcing that the Christ is here. The kingdom is at hand. It's not quite here yet. The cross is going to bring that really into history completely. That's where God rules and destroys our enemies of sin and brings us back to himself completely. But it's starting to come into the world. So they've already been trained for this. So Matthew 13 just just, falls right in line with the same kind of theme, just from a parable-type angle and a metaphorical-type angle. Be evangelist. Christians understand the gospel, and they teach it to others. And so this is this encouraging thing for all of you, wherever you are spiritually, all four of these things. Jesus is just saying this. Here's what he's saying. This is what the kingdom of God is like. This is happening all over the world right now and right now in this very room. The treasures of the newness of Jesus Christ, that he saves you from your sins by dying for you, is is being brought out right now into this room. And for many of you, thousands of times in your life already, you've been the agent of that or the receiver of that. Happens all the time. This is what Jesus is saying. This is kind of like what's going on every day. How do we respond to it is the question, right? And part of the response is being the agent of that sharing of the gospel to other people, being evangelistic. So if you're not a Christian today, these first three things are especially important for you. Do you understand that Jesus is the, the new work promised by God beforehand? That he's, that he's your savior? That he's that promised king that God said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to undo the stench of sin, the fact that sin has marred everything. I'm going to undo that completely through my suffering servant, my Messiah, my new David, my king. If you believe that, the cross is sufficient, you're saved. Because he loves you in that. Nothing you have to do. You can't earn that or pay God back for that. If you are, now wherever you are spiritually too, that fourth thing especially is maybe especially convicting. Remember the first three if you're a Christian. That fourth thing, is that true for you? It's one thing to say, go be like the scribe and bring out of your heart all these treasures, which is true. It's another thing to say, this is happening all over the world right now. Are you in the game or not? Is this a type of kingdom that you're a part of? Because for some of you, it's just not. Like, you're, you're, not, you're not this type of trained scribe, or you're an incomplete trained scribe. And I want to be careful with that, because nobody's perfect here, by any means. It's not the point. The point is, in general, is this, is this the type of kingdom that you, that you believe is real, and that you're a part of? It's a very, let that sink in and challenge you a bit. You know, what, what does it mean for you right now in this week to bring out of your heart the, tr- the new treasure of Jesus Christ for, for others to see? The people know you're a Christian around you. The Holy Spirit will use the church to build the church and make it bigger and more substantial around the world. There's no other way God moves but through preaching of the gospel of Christ in many and various ways. So, so be in that. Be a trained scribe for the kingdom, in part by understanding, but by also being the scribal idea of teaching. Many, that's just a preacher thing. Wherever you are spiritually, you can be a scribe for the kingdom because you know enough that others might hear what, what it is, what it means to be saved, and they can too have that salvation through you. So... If you are a Christian, you are, this, you are this trained scribe. So get in the game and just believe that it's happening because it is. And a ton in our culture and context in church, uh, praise God. Many of you guys are, um, yeah, doing a ton of great work there. So praise God for what he's doing through us. Okay, so those are four things, four uh, issues with the scribal idea. But not all respond positively to the gospel, right? Uh, to, to people bringing treasure out of their houses. We've seen that time and time again in Matthew. We're going to see it again now. Stick with the metaphor. Some people bring out those treasures into their yard, but some people just don't understand how valuable they are when they see it. Or they might look on them in contempt and say, ah, but I have better stuff in my basement. I don't need it. And have that contempt. So to stick with that metaphor then, we can kind of see it that way. And that's exactly what's going to happen now with uh, Christ here, getting rejection from his family and having this unbelief uh, confronted by unbelief here in Nazareth. So let's read that now. Matthew 13, 53 to 58. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters here with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. All right, so uh, more than once in Matthew now, uh, if you've been reading cover to cover here, some of you guys might be aware of this from other gospel accounts too, but Jesus talks a lot about family. interacts with family a lot, I think for a reason. Family becomes this crucible 
for understanding the nature of God's kingdom. And not just family, but familial rejection, or in some cases, more broad, the unlikely being drawn to Jesus like I said before, over and against the clean or religious or family. So again, sometimes it's the prostitute who's being chosen over the good moral spiritual leader in Jesus' day. Happens a lot. Here in Matthew 13, we see this play out in a varied sense. Like, we're seeing a random scribe understand, but those who knew Jesus best, in one sense, in his hometown, are rejecting him and do not understand the kingdom. So it's one of the reasons why we're looking at these passages together today. It's this great juxtaposition of reception and rejection, but the unlikely on both sides. You think it'd be flipped, right? People who don't know Jesus that well would, like, who's this guy? It's actually people who know him really, really well that reject, and so I'll explain that here in a second. But uh, spanning back, though, before that, I think this is really helpful to understand God has a plan for all of this. This is not just a lone island. This, this Jesus getting rejected by family is not this anomaly. It's very, very common, and it's very in step with what how God works elsewhere in the Bible. And in fact, this picks up on a major, major biblical theme that spans back to the very early parts of the Old Testament, and that is family rejection. In fact, one of the ways to understand the Bible is it's a big book of a bunch of family rejections over and over and over again. Some of you guys know this, right? I mean, it is. Some of you don't, yeah. We're going to walk through this really quick. Uh, and if you don't know some of these characters and these stories, that's okay. You don't have to. Just understand that all these people are in the Bible. All these stories really happen in history. And most of these people are in the direct bloodline of Jesus Christ. And all these people, according to the Bible, are forerunners of Jesus Christ. They resemble him in their character in some ways, and in their life stories. So we're gonna, so have that in mind as we go through this. So this is just a sampling, keep this in mind too, it's a sampling of family rejection in the Bible. It's way back in the early parts of Genesis. We have Lot rejecting Abraham, his uncle. We have Ishmael rejecting Isaac, his half-brother. Esau rejecting Jacob, his brother. The 11 brothers of Jacob rejecting Joseph, the one brother selling into slavery in Egypt. We have the Jews in a widespread manner rejecting Moses, even though God said, I'm sending you Moses to free you from slavery in Egypt. They said, who's this guy? Who made him leader over us? And they reject him. This is actually just the first one of many times they reject him. It gets way worse than Exodus 5. But anyway, that's the first time. Absalom rejects David. Uh, Absalom is David's son. So in one case, the, the king, David, being staged a coup against by Absalom, his own son. Uh, rejects him, and many Jews, with, uh, many Jews uh, with him as well, in 2 Samuel 15. goes on and on and on and on. In, uh, and actually in Acts 7, 35 in the New Testament, Stephen, one of the early Christians, is noting this pattern of rejection in reference to Moses, and he's speaking this to Jews who are in his day rejecting the early Christians. So the pattern's alive there. Look what he says. This Moses, whom you, the Jews, rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer. Isn't this great? What does that sound like? Who made you a ruler and a judge, Moses? What does that sound like? His family, Jesus' family, right? People in his hometown are saying the exact same thing. Who is this guy? We changed his diaper. You know, it's like, who is he? Who gave him this wisdom and power? Like, who? Come on, you've got to be kidding. There's no way. He's the prophet. He's the Messiah. He's the Holy One of God. He's too normal. It's the exact same thing. The pattern of rejection, the pattern of God raising up a prophet, a redeemer, an anointed one, a savior type, exactly what Moses was in the Old Testament, and then all of Israel rejecting him is alive and well all throughout biblical history right up here until the day of Christ. So it goes on and on cyclically for two reasons. Because of humanity's hard hearts to the things of God. Whenever you see that, by the way, God raises up a redeemer. It's a picture of Jesus beforehand. But when you see that rejection, the widespread rejection of that, it's a small display. It's an echo of the human heart, our existence for all time. Because we've all done that. When God, when God shows up and says, I'm here to bless you and help you and be enough for you, when we say no, no, we say no thanks, that's not enough, you're not sufficient, I might believe in you, but I also need this over here, we're doing the most sinful thing that any human being can ever do. We're replacing God with stuff. First and foremost, ourselves, usually. But it could be just stuff. We're saying, I need this as well. That's what rebellion is. And you see that play out time and time. That's what sin is. Time and time and time again in the Old Testament. We see it's humanity's hard hearts to the things of God. So that's one reason why it comes up over and over again. But it also comes up, and you probably got a hint of this or a wind of this already. 
it ultimately comes up to testify to the Christ. Everything in the Bible is about him, beforehand or after the fact. Everything is about the rejection of Jesus on the cross. That's the climax of the whole Bible. If that's the case, it would make sense. We get echoes and glimmers of this, right, earlier in the story. And we don't just get it once. We get it several times. And this is just a sampling today of the, of the greater rejection, or more rejections that we see that's just splattered throughout uh, the, the Old Testament. So the old stories then, this is an example, by the way, of bringing out the old and the new of our hearts. The old stories that made up the life events of the people through whom God said redemption will come consist of familial rejection. So Jesus Christ, the new thing, the ultimate Abraham, the ultimate Isaac, the final Jacob, the greater Joseph, the ultimate Moses, the final David, was rejected by his own family, Jews, friends, and people as well. All the way to the cross. It was always in God's crosshairs of his saving agenda. Always his plan. But through that, God would bring life to the world. Right? This is where it gets to be such amazing news. And, and peaceful and encouraging, I think, in a sense, just to understand that God always wanted this. He did not die a random plan B death. He always planned that rejection, even family rejection and close rejection of his people would be a part of how God would fix the sin problem of the world. Anyway, Mark 14, and they left him and all fled, the disciples. Jesus said no one left at the cross. Those who knew him best rejected him. John 19, so he, Pilate, delivered him, Jesus, over to them, the Jews, to be crucified. All rejection leads there, John 19. All rejection of the Bible has, is making a, a beeline to that. I'm going to switch, I think, now. <laughs> is it, uh, well, it's, yeah, it's right here. I'll get it. Test, test. Hello? There we go. All right. So all, all rejections are headed towards the cross. And I have a thing here on the bottom to just help you see that. Old Testament rejection, Jesus' pre-cross rejection, like we're studying today in Matthew 13, should make us think about, ahead in the story, to the ultimate place where God is rejected by, by sinful people. So that's from, John, that's from John 19. It's just greater thread here too. So it's a little bit of rejection we're getting from people in Jesus' hometown points us two directions, Right? To the Old Testament, this happened before. We've seen this before. If reading the Bible cover to cover, you will not be surprised when this is happening, right? Because you've seen it dozens of times in major, major ways. Happened to people who clearly are forerunners and resemblers of Jesus Christ. But it also points us ahead to anticipate Christ and what he does for us on the cross, especially by pointing there. That's the great place of rejection, but also the great place of salvation as well. This is where it becomes good news. This is how God saves us right here. He works through rejection to bring about the greatest good. He always planned to do it. He's sovereign. It means he's in control. He always planned to do this, stretching way back to Genesis. Right after sin came into the world, he's already bringing family rejection to the world to indicate and be an echo of, a forerunning echo of the cross. He's rejected. We've we all rejected him. We've all rejected God. But look what he did through that. I mean, he's genius. Nothing can derail the steamroller of God's saving agenda. Nothing. Take encouragement in that. Look what he's done. So if you're not a Christian today, this is the core of Christianity right here. Christianity says God dies and suffers and is rejected by people, but through that brings the greatest of goods to a dead and dying world. And this is his work. This is not our work. We did not manufacture the cross. No one was there saying, see, I told you. No one. It's foolishness to the world. But he did that, and he took pleasure in that to make sure no one could say, I figured it out, and I accomplished this, and I worked it out on my own. God does it completely on his terms, completely on his watch, so that it's by his grace we're saved, and his goodness, and his power, not by us, not by our works. Another manifestation of that that we see loud and clear in, in the scriptures. All right, so we have all of that, but then we can also look at this paradigm in the bottom in one further way. One more chart here. Old Testament rejection to Jesus' rejection in a widespread manner, including the both uh, types, pre-cross and cross, but then also Christian rejection. So verse 57 again said, Jesus said to them, a prophet, any prophet, is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. So we experience, you Christian, have or will, some of you anyway, will experience family rejection on a spiritual level 
uh, if, if you haven't already. Now, again, not everybody will, but in general, the church faces this type of thing Jesus went through because we're in him and he is in us. And if you have a hard time understanding why exactly would these people that know Jesus really well in his hometown, like probably some of his family and relatives, people that knew him well, like old neighbors and stuff like that, why would they reject him? If you have a hard time feeling that, just try to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with your unsaved grandpa someday or your unsaved mom or dad, and you'll get a really good idea quick of what he's going through. Because it hardly ever works. I, don't, I can't think of anybody I've ever known off the top of my head who has been the saving agent of their unsaved grandfather. And maybe some of you have, and that's great. It's not, it's not, there's going to be some exceptions to this. But in general, we get walls, right, when you start to talk to people. Because the big reason is, who are you? The same kind of thing that, that Jesus is getting here in his hometown is, I saw your diaper getting changed. I was like your preschool teacher. Or, I, you know, I was your carpenter uh, mentor, you know, or whatever. <laughs> Those kind of things. I saw you, and now you come back into the city and you have all this wisdom, and where did you get this? And, but you're so normal. Like, salvation can't come from you, because I know you. It's got to be from, from, uh, from someone else. And they took offense at that. And we'll talk about the offense here uh, in, in a second, but I just want to address that for one second here. If those of you guys who have this going on in your life right now, because I know for a fact several of you are, and probably more than I realize, are going through this. Uh, three encouragements for especially those of you who have family rejection for being a Christian right now. First of all, it's normative. It's not an accident. If you get anything from today, look at what the Bible says to you. It's all throughout the Old Testament. It's all throughout the, it's, it's the cornerstone, the center of your faith is, in one sense, a story of family rejection. So you should expect that to be demonstrated and lived out in your life. And take some encouragement that it's not a random, it's not randomness, because randomness brings anxiety. If you don't really know why it's happening or if it's random, we think we're alone, you're going to be anxious. You're going to have a really hard time with it. But it's going to help you if you know that this has happened before many, 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 many times in history, and you're just keeping in step as one more person of faith, person who believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ who's being rejected for. This is why, and it just takes actually a little bit of happiness from that. This is why the prophets in the New Testament, for example, rejoice and sing and laugh when they're persecuted for the faith because they know that Christ was as well. And that must mean that he's alive in them. They actually consider it joy when they're spit on and hated and mocked and threatened unto death or just disrespected and thought stupid by their family for the sake of the gospel. They consider that is hard for them, of course, but they considered it pure joy, uh, James says in chapter 1 of the New Testament. So think that. Secondly, Jesus knows how you feel. That's huge. We have a Savior who's been rejected more than we ever will. And he's alive in you and he loves you. So that's a beautiful thing about the Christian God is we have a God who can empathize with our weaknesses because he came a human being. No other God can, no other, no other system of religion can claim that. But we believe in a God who became like us and was tempted in every way we were, who, who shared our weaknesses, who suffered, who was rejected, and he's a God that you pray to. So he knows. Isn't that amazing? It, it's, it's, it would blow your mind. If you're really thinking about it, because we hardly ever do this, right? But if you really think about it, it'll probably like blow your mind. Like, throughout, like on Wednesday, your mind will get blown when you start thinking about this. But anyway, maybe not now, but a little later on, it's just going to go. But uh, anyway, so that's the, that's the third thing. Uh, second thing. Third thing is don't give up evangelizing. God is stronger than whatever resistance you're experiencing with your family, period. Right? He's stronger. He's bigger than sin, bigger than resistance. Pray for them. Be patient with them. Remember that once you too were that rebellious, you're not a better person. You're, j- you're just as hard-hearted. The only reason why you're saved is because God softened your heart. And Matthew 13, he gave you understanding about the kingdom. And then keep preaching and demonstrating that gospel and again, pray for their salvation because you can't save them. Only, only God can. You can just be an agent. All right. Uh, last verse in this passage, verse uh, 58, is huge too. We'll spend a couple of minutes on that before we wrap up here. Uh, the bigger issue, if part of the issue is this family dimension, and that relates to some of us, what's going to relate to all of us is the issue of unbelief. Unbelief. So bigger than that issue, the family issue, the simple fact here that people had unbelief in their hearts. So Verse 58 says, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So maybe he did some, which is kind of funny. I always thought that was funny that he did some, some mighty works, but he couldn't do a lot or something like that. Or it's just always, Mark's account of this, I think, says, Jesus could not do many mighty works there 
except heal a few people miraculously with a touch of his hand. <laughs> I just thought, that's pretty good, you know? I mean, I, I don't know. I guess there's always more he can do, but I, I, nothing more to say about that other than I just think that's always one of my humorous points of, of the gospel accounts. But it's similar here. He couldn't do many mighty works because of their, their unbelief. So what's going on here in Jesus' town is simply that. Jesus gets really pointed with it. There's unbelief. They're not believing the gospel of Christ. And what's happening in their hearts is they're hard-hearted, but I think if you really peel back the layers of what's said, how they respond, what we get to is a works-based way of thinking. Uh, They're thinking of themselves too highly and God too little. Sin is not that big. And so what they're expecting for a Messiah is much more on them and about religion rather than the work of God in the world. So here's what I mean. I want to use this iceberg illustration. Some guys have probably seen this used literally 10,000 times in your life, but this will be 10,001. Um, we're not novel around here. That's, that's good, though. Anyway, uh, top of the ice, the idea is that uh, our actions and things that, uh, I'm going to use it this way anyway today, our actions, things we say, are informed by underlying beliefs. So the 90% of the iceberg below the water, that's the more important thing to look at. And the Bible does this all the time. Uh, when it talks about humility, for example, it talks about, I'll come to this in a minute, but it talks about the bottom. How you get humility is not by saying, be humble. You can't tell someone to be humble and expect them to respond well because we're too sinful for that. So we get it through the gospel, the underlying thing. But anyway, that's going to come up here in a few minutes. But the big idea here is actions and statements are informed by the greater underlying beliefs. So if we go back and look at what the family said, I think, and, and, and it's not just you know the iceberg thing here. This is just a greater wealth of scripture informing us how we as sinful people think without the gospel. We're much more high in ourselves naturally. We're born into that than the Bible teaches. And, and that's just going to change how we, uh, how we view a Savior. So here's what I mean specifically. First thing is, basically what they're saying here on the top of the iceberg, what they're saying when Jesus comes is, we know this guy's simplicity. right? He can't be a prophet. He's too normal. Where does he get all this power? And they, t- they took offense at him, right? So what's un- the underlying belief there or statement that that's likely in their mind, we can read this into it, is we're used by God and even saved from our sins by being somebody. Everyone knows that. By being special. Everyone knows that. By being strong and religious and a really good person. By being intelligent. So we know this guy's too, too simple, too normal. Can't be. And we're, that, what's underlying that then is we're saved by what we do, which is, in a word, pure, unadulterated unbelief. Right there. Thinking we're saved by what we do, not by the work of God in the world. But you see all these, these underlying thoughts basically make them think and say these things on top? Look at, look at this way, too. On top we can put, and they took offense at him, which is what Matthew 13 says. Underlying that is, he's just like one of us. Why does he get all this wisdom and power? This is what the Jews said to Moses, remember? He says, you're just like one of us. Who made you ruler over us? That's the underlying belief and thought there. Underlying that is, I'm a pretty great person as well. Where's my turn? I deserve things, including salvation, right? You see what breeds these type of thoughts? Otherwise, you wouldn't be, we wouldn't be offended. If we're operating by grace, if, if we have a right view of ourselves, it's going to breed humility and a right response to whatever God is doing in the world. So underlying all this, again, is another form of unbelief. So the right, one right system to you know, splatter on this grid here is receiving Christ and his gospel humbly and being trained for the kingdom. If that's the top, what's underlying that is I'm not awesome. I'm not a great person. I am a sinner. I am a rebel. I am dead spiritually. I can't move. I can't do anything before God in a spiritually good sense. I need him to be my goodness. I need him to replace me, to die in my place, to raise me from the dead, to call me from the tombs. He has to do something. See how Christian we're sounding all of a sudden? We start talking these capacities. It's like this this is how you think and talk biblically. This is how the Bible is written. All about him, not about... This is why Jesus rejects religious people, because they don't think this way. Religious people do not have this part of the iceberg. They think they are not perfect, but pretty good. And what God is about in the world is making good people great, not making dead people live. Big, big difference. Understand. God is about raising the dead, not about making you a pretty good person better, and grading on the curve in the end and letting the best people into heaven. Not what the Bible teaches. To see what we have to do here is what the Bible is constantly doing, for the most part, is speaking in the bottom iceberg waves. 
all the time, right? That's why we do this all the time here at Hiawatha, because we know that we're not going to get the top of the iceberg things just by telling people that. You know, if you put be humble up there, be gentle, or be generous, or whatever it is, we, we want to spend most of our time on the bottom because those top things are going to be informed by a proper meditation on the bottom, which is belief. Pure, unadulterated belief is just to say, I'm trusting, I'm believing that Jesus is enough, that, he's, that he actually loves me. He's been rejected unto death and to, and to die a shameful, torturous death among criminals in my place. Hallelujah. Glory to God. And we, and we believe afresh, and that breeds humility and a proper response to, to the Savior. So the key principle here then, uh, going back to the works thing, uh, is, you know, Jesus said, belief and mighty works are connected. So Jesus will do no mighty work of salvation. I want to make sure that's key here too. P- plug in salvation for mighty work because the ultimate mighty work God does in the Bible, all, it's the fulfillment of all the lesser works he's doing in the first part of the, the gospel account. Every healing is about ultimately the cross. So he will do no mighty work of salvation in your life without faith. Belief and trust in him are wedded with his power to bring about that mighty work of God in, in your life. And in conclusion then, just to wrap this up, be trained. the idea here is to be trained for the kingdom. Believe the newness of the gospel. Bring that gospel out of the treasure of your heart to share with others. And, uh, and prepare yourself for rejection. Remember that rejection is at the core of your belief system. Let it point you back to Jesus. Remember your Savior. Basically, all we've done today is looked at the gospel of Jesus Christ from two angles. The old and new theme in parable form in Matthew 13. And we looked at it from this family rejection theme. But it's all about him. I mean, make no mistake, everything in the Bible is ultimately about him and about the cross. This is what God wants for us. Wherever you are spiritually, he's saying, I love you. I've gone through rejection, even death on a cross, for your sins and for you. This is the culmination of God's saving work in the world. And it's, just, it's clear from both Testaments over and over and over again. God is demonstrating and declaring this in both ways in perfect harmony. So that's what I want to invite you guys to. See, and if some of you are being rejected currently, see an echo of the cross in your experience. You're in Christ. He promised you you'll be rejected on in different levels, even by family. Let it point you back to Jesus and take a lot of refuge in that and encouragement and see, this is what my Savior went through, but on a much higher level for me. And now he's alive in me. And the drama of salvation is being lived out in the world, in part through me. How cool, you know, is that? So at least in part, I view it that way. But overall, yeah, let it remind you of what your Savior has done for you because God has done amazing things for all of you. Wherever you are spiritually, you are, you are loved way more than you realize, way more deeply than you realize by the creator of the universe. Look what he's done for all of us. Uh, glory to God. So let me pray for us and we'll respond. Thank you, Father, for uh, today. Thank you for the cross, the gospel of Christ, uh, that it is by your doing and your grace that we are saved, not by our works and our righteousness. Thank you for telling us that message again and again and again. Today, through a cryptic parable, one-sentence parable, and through a theme of family rejection. Uh, God, thank you so much uh, for being our all-in-all, the answer to all of our problems. Uh, Help us to respond now and just uh, give you glory, because salvation in all its entirety is uh, is a gift from you. So, God, I pray that we'd respond afresh today for the first time or millionth time to, uh, to you. In Christ's name, amen.